yeah, just jumped on an erg and, and was peddling some hydraulic fluid around and nice guys, pretty pretty cool team, good chat and good camaraderie and I thought that would be pretty cool to stick around for so yeah, I just hung around like a virus and it was a huge contrast from going from track cycling to, to cycling on a, on a yacht. organised betting but it's it's well known before the bets are made who's doing what in the race and what their what their goals are in the race and yeah I mean we wear full motocross armour and uh, there are a lot of crashes and broken bikes and, and yeah, a few injuries but yeah I mean it's so editorial that you get caught up in it and you just don't care you just race hard and, and, and go for the line on the front and ended up in the dagger case um, area and didn't really know where I was and I think Josh, Andy and Blair hit me on their way past and really ran me into the dagger case so bit of a sore back after that but bad gas, bad move bit of uh, too much power and yeah over she went so it was um, obviously exciting at the same time it was dangerous so pretty cool memory to have Simon van Velthoven has made an art form out of turning pedals. In a past life, he was a world-class track cyclist, winning Olympic, World Championship and Commonwealth Games medals. Now he's an America's Cup sailor with Emirates Team New Zealand. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. We've got something a little different this week, but appropriate given we're on the eve of the America's Cup match between Emirates Team New Zealand and Luna Rossa. Simon van Velthoven made a name for himself as a top cyclist, highlighted by the bronze medal he won in the Kieran at the 2012 London Olympics. He was involved during the emergence of the highly successful New Zealand track cycling program, and he delves into that, but also the weird and wonderful world of professional Kieran racing in Japan, where cyclists were essentially seen as colourful greyhounds riding on steel frame bikes, complete with padding and oversized helmets. It was all done among the backdrop of a monk-like existence and the spectre of big money betting in the Japanese mafia. It was Simon's achievements on the bike which landed him an invitation to work with Team New Zealand in 2016 as they explored putting bikes on boats. He liked what he saw, hung around, and found himself on the boat in Bermuda as they won the America's Cup. Incredibly, his first sailing race was an America's Cup race. Simon is still with the team, but he has had to reinvent himself as a traditional grinder, turning handles with his arms rather than his legs. Simon, though, has fallen in love with sailing and can often be found in his spare time racing keelboats. And he's also worked in the industry beyond the America's Cup. With Auckland in Alert Level 3 lockdown, this interview was done over the phone, so the quality of the audio is not as good as some other podcasts. But Simon tells some fascinating stories in our 50-minute chat. So hang around and enjoy. Well, joining us now is Simon Van Belthoven from uh, Emirates in New Zealand. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Um, well, we're obviously on the eve of the America's Cup match. There's a little bit of um, uncertainty about exactly when that's going to happen. But what's the, the feeling like inside Emirates Team New Zealand at the moment? Yeah, well, we're uh, obviously working pretty hard here and been working hard for the last two or three years and, and um, just excited to get out there and do some racing now that we've... Uh, Developed so hard and developed so much, and and uh, got our boat handling pretty dialed in now, and and um, yeah, just just excited really. What impact has the delay had on the team? Because I'm guessing you all had that March sixth date entered in sort of bold type in your calendars. Yeah, I mean it's. I'm sure there's a bit more pressure on the senior management side, but us as a sailing team, we just. Uh, make sure we're 100% physically and mentally and, and um, 
ready to take on whatever there is on the water. So uh, it doesn't matter what really start date there is. It's just uh, just another day, really. How closely did you follow the sailing through the um, throughout the Prada Cup? Yeah, we'd all put our tools down at four o'clock and inside, or three o'clock and four o'clock to sign into the racing. And, and yeah, it was um, I mean, they're pretty exciting boats to see firsthand, and, and they look very impressive on the TV as well. So, uh, the I suppose the learning curve of getting the boats around the race course fast was 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 pretty steep, and, and uh, all the teams seemed to improve every race they did. So, yeah, we. Uh, Obviously, took note of all that and um, applied it to our own training, and, and yeah, just uh, doing our our very best to have a have a clean start and a clean race. Do you guys feel race sharp, even though you haven't raced against another AC seventy five for a couple of months now? Um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, nerves when we raced, obviously, in the Christmas Cup, and and we took it to them as much as we could, and and learnt a lot there, and. I suppose it's a bit out of my uh, knowledge and skill set where eight of us are just supplying power or six of us are just supplying power to the to the boat and, and there's four or five guys that are that are actually doing the sailing and, and doing the manoeuvres around the around the course. So yeah, it's uh our job as grinders is to make sure the boat's got as much power as it as it can when it needs it and and yeah, allow, allow the afterguard to do their thing. How physical is it, you know, those during those twenty-five minute races? Yeah, I mean, obviously the wind strength um, changes a lot, and uh, the power demand changes with that. And uh, again, with uh, what how how Pete Blair and Pete Blair and Glenn sail the boat. Um, Make the pintail fiercely. They uh, they created as well, so it's it's all uh, dependent on that. So I mean, yeah, we're 180 heart rate for 180 plus heart rate for the whole pre-start, and then uh, then we settle in for a clean race. It, it could dip down, but yeah, I mean, it's if you're a disposable battery like I am, then you just give it all for one race and and uh, sign off. Yeah. Okay. Give it. How aware are you? You know, as a grinder, you talk about being head down of of what's going on around you and and what's happening in the race. Yeah, we've got uh, obviously PDAs and and uh, all the boat data streaming to us directly, and and uh, for sure we know where we are on the course and where the opponent is. But um, we've just got one or two jobs to do, and and uh, we just want to do them well. We'll do them the very best, and and if we put in our best, then Pete obviously has more power than he needs, and and can trim the boat to suit. And uh, I I would expect that would equal speed on the course. So um, when we say head down, we're we're staying aero, obviously, out of the wind, and um, and yeah, just putting out as much power as we can, chasing those hydraulic numbers. So given these machines go much faster than the wind, are there times when you're not sure if you're going upwind or downwind? Um, it's a lot noisier going upwind. So um, yeah, you definitely know when you're going upwind. But uh, if you wanted to do a race without seeing the outside, then you could quite easily do that just uh, by um, by keeping your head down. But um, it's good to it's good to Check where you where you are and, and check the, uh, the the jib as it's coming across when you're doing the snap and and um, yeah just to just to make sure you're in tune with the boat and the race. So far, I guess in this campaign, how's it differed from the last campaign? What's been the experience been like as a defender as opposed to being a challenger? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, these guys that have been in this team for 25 years, and I only really joined the team officially when we left for Bermuda, and the cycling system was signed off. Obviously, did a lot of testing and training with the guys, and and um, it was a very short ride, an intense ride, but a very short ride to the into the cup in Bermuda. So, um, yeah, this campaign I've been relatively around 
the team from the from the start of the cycle and and obviously joined the team when I proved myself as a grinder in the in the trials and and yeah actually done all the testing all the development and and uh, everything else in between so I've seen how much work goes into a campaign how much time how much sacrifice people make with uh with their lives and their families and and everything else in between so yeah it's a huge contrast from from Bermuda to to the defence in Auckland yeah well it's probably worth tracking at this moment sort of how you came to be involved with Emirates Team New Zealand and the America's Cup because it wasn't a traditional pathway and prior to 2016 you were better known as a track cyclist winning Olympic world and Commonwealth medals so uh, I guess famously won um, bronze um, at the in the Karen at the 2012 London Olympics when you and a, a Dutch rider finished in a dead heat and couldn't be separated. How did that experience change your life? Yeah, I was I was uh, pretty fresh in the in the grand scheme of cycling. I mean, Sir Chris Hoy was 36 or 37, and uh, he was a knight racing at his home Olympics and in the last event of of of, of track cycling and. Um, I was a fresh 23-year-old. 20, I'd raced him a lot, obviously, leading up through the ranks there. And, and uh, as a as a junior, when you're 18, you leave the junior ranks and you step straight into elite men. There's no under 23 or 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 intermediate grade. It's, it's as soon as you leave juniors, you're you're a senior. So you get to race the big boys from an early age. And and yeah, I, I had a good world champs and and I had a good come off games before that and. And yeah, I was just, I don't know, trained really, really hard. And then when I got to the start line in London, I believed I deserved the medal because I put all the work in. And I think that's half the winning formula, really, is that if you believe that you've you've trained enough and, and trained hard enough and trained smart enough, then you, then you deserve to win something, let alone win. So, yeah, thinking back, I believe I did deserve to win and I made a couple of mistakes in the race, but... What you expect at your first Olympics in in front of a mega crowd in London, you know, it was pretty uh, pretty over the top, really. The crowd there, and especially with Chris Hoy racing as a knight on his home track, it was. Um, I mean, it was his race to lose, really, but it was uh, amazing, really, and kind of led me to more more results in track cycling and some great great times and memories, and travelled the world and raced in some pretty obscure places getting some good results and ultimately led me here so yeah I mean Olympics is a awesome event and can open so many doors. How was your um, belated 21st birthday party because um, I think in the elation of winning a medal you invited the whole country to attend didn't you? Yeah I mean at that time I was living maybe 20 days out of Fielding or Palmy and uh yeah, hadn't really been home for a few years and hadn't really seen anyone for a few years and my life on the road since I was 18 and and um, at 23 at that point everyone had their 21st and a decent party and just uh, kind of really invited everyone that I knew to a, to a bit of a doozy. So yeah, had it around Christmas, Christmas Eve in, in 2012 and yeah, I think we got through, we had a pallet of beer there that we got through one night, so I think there's about thirteen or fourteen hundred bottles. So um, got to catch up with a few mates, and, and I think my dad had his work do the same night too. So everyone was happy. So you're around the scene, the cycling scene, at about the time the the New Zealand track cycling program really started to produce results on the international scene. What was it like to be involved at that time? Yeah, I mean the men's team pursuit won bronze in Beijing. And I was good friends with a few of those guys, and and they really trailblazed it for the I don't know the same generation I was in, and um, in the cargo building a velodrome, an indoor velodrome, was a huge stepping stone, and and we all lived down there for for a number of years just training on on that track, and that really just allowed us to ride fast all the time, and uh, it was a cheap place to live and. Nothing really to do except race your bike. So um, it was just a huge growth area for, for New Zealand track cycling. And and uh, Southland had a really strong team for a long time. And 
And now Waikato's got a, a new velodrome. They've almost taken over as the lead uh, lead centre. So, yeah, I think track cycling is just continuing to grow because people don't like to race on the road as much with the amount of traffic around. And, and track cycling is a cool sport. Like You get to race at 75k an hour on a bike and and uh, conditions are always the same and it's warm in the winter and cool in the summer inside and and uh, yeah, I mean the bottom line is that it's just cool. It's cool racing and, and obviously cool to watch. Talk to me about some of those training sessions in, in Justin Grace's garage. You know, you, you hear stories about spew buckets and all sorts of things. Yeah, it's just any sport really, especially a uh, sport where you uh, like your physical performance is the is the end end goal, and there's no real. I mean, there is a skill set, obviously, riding a bike and a and a and a and a race awareness. But I mean, 99 percent of it's just hard training, and and uh, the better you train, and the smarter you train, and the and the more you train, the the more chance you have of of doing well. So more often than not, that includes spewing. So yeah. What about the, the nickname of Rhino? Um, how did that come about? Um, oh, I was just the old boys of track cycling. There, there was no real sprint team back in the day, and they were all weedy and zeros, and weren't used to, I don't know, more heavily set guys walking around. So it was yeah, big F and Rhino, and that's where it came from. It stuck. Nothing special, really. Is <laughs> it stuck with Team New Zealand as well? Uh, yeah, I've had a few variations of a, a hippo and a warthog and any other rotund African animal, so. <laughs> so you've won medals at the Olympics, World Championships, Commonwealth Games. Is, is there a large degree of satisfaction when you look back or, or did you want more? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's cool winning a medal, but it's still a dirty bronze, you know. Would have been nice to win a gold and and uh, I've had some uh, really clean, nice results at World Cup level of uh, of winning gold. But yeah, I mean, it's I'd hate to get silver. Winning bronze is a relief that you get on the podium, but I think winning gold would be a, would be another feeling again. So yeah, it was uh, always just outside the uh, gold medal in the in the world champs and the kilo and the Karen and and yeah, I mean, pretty ecstatic to win a. Olympic medal as a 23-year-old at your first Olympics, but yeah, it would have been nice to go back again and, and give it another hit, but yeah, the medal was calling. So what sort of lifestyle is it to go from track meet to track meet? Um, yeah, you, know, you just pick a suitcase for the year and, and see you later. You uh, chase the European summer and, and race and train in the heat and um, race the Germans and the Spanish and the English and all that, all all New Zealand winter and then during the New Zealand summer, the European winter is the is the World Cup circuit, so you go away again for that. So yeah, it was it was I don't know fifty plus flights a year, you know. So it was um, taxing thinking about that now, doing all that time in the air, but hell of a lot of fun and and really exciting getting to race all the time. Yeah, it's certainly hard to imagine fifty flights a year. <laughs> uh, environment in the world, anyway. But one yeah. of the really, really interesting periods, I guess, for you was probably after the London Olympics when you went to Japan to race on the Kieran circuit. And uh, you know, for those listening who don't know, it's a professional cycling circuit, um, but you raced on old school steel bikes while wearing padding and huge helmets, and you raced on on concrete tracks. And it's often likened actually to horse racing or, or greyhound racing. And Japanese bet huge sums of money on it because it's the only form of legalised gambling allowed. Were there times when you felt like a horse or a greyhound? Yeah, I. Um, I mean, everyone's track cycling dream is to to go and race there, and uh, I was lucky enough to be. I mean, I had a good World Cup season in 2010, and uh, I somehow convinced them that I'll be a good candidate. They take five internationals a year. I think I was one of the, I mean, I was the youngest at, at 21 to go there. Ross Edgar was another rider that had gone previously before me as a 21-year-old, but I'm pretty sure no one else has been there as a younger rider. And the first Kiwi to go, and, uh, yeah, we'd get a six-month contract. Yeah, 
pay your way to get there. Yeah, buy all your steel bikes that are approved by the JKA, and and um, you pretty much travel around Japan for for six months. They've got about fifty odd tracks there, and, and I think there's about two and a half thousand registered Japanese Karen riders, and and yeah, you're pretty much racing for cash, and um, I think there's about a trillion yen bet annually on on Japanese Karen, and and uh, it's it's fairly big money. Compared to other sports, it's it's you like your IPLs of of cricket, but unfortunately we don't get to race in the the really big races that they have because the Japanese riders don't don't want us taking away all their money. But yeah, we're more like the weekly greyhounds of uh of the sport, and and yeah, it was an awesome time. I mean, yeah, yeah, 21 years old and and getting paid in brown paper bags of cash. Um, Obviously tried to save as much as I could, but Tokyo's calling every every five days, you know. So I um, obviously enjoyed myself, but yeah, it was um, pretty wild six months, and I went back there five times. So it's pretty. Uh, it's only a one year contract, and and um, they always look for the most entertaining riders, and and uh, you're out there to to race and knock each other off, and and uh, there's no real rules as such. You just can't wave to the crowd or or signal to anyone or or uh, or do anything like that because it's a, obviously a gambling sport. And um, yeah, just uh, race hard and not crash and and um, win heaps of money. So you're wearing padding and these huge helmets, and uh, you know you're coloured like a, a a jockey. I guess each each rider's got a different colour on. You talked about it being quite physical. You know, did you were you a physical rider? Did you get a reputation for being a certain type of rider? Um yeah, I mean there's there's riders there that are there to make you crash. And then there's riders there that the those guys follow to the line and they protect the riders that they follow. So ultimately you'd have nine or you have nine riders on the course and there's three teams of three and there's three lead-out riders and two guys that protect that lead-out rider from the other two teams. So it's organised betting, but it's it's well known before the bets are made who's doing what in the race and what their what their goals are in the race. And, uh, and yeah, the punters bet on a strong lead-out rider or they bet on a strong rider that has great protection skills that can crash everyone and still win. And... Um, and yeah, I mean we wear full motocross armour, and uh, there are a lot of crashes and broken bikes and and yeah, a few injuries. But yeah, I mean it's so editorial that you get caught up in it, and you just don't care. You just race hard and 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 go for the line. What about the living arrangements? Because um, alongside the racing, because they're quite special, aren't they? Yeah, we're locked away for four days because it's a betting sport and. No phone, no laptop, no newspaper, no nothing for four days. So you live a pretty simple life when you're at the event, and um, yeah, you just sit around watching movers and and talking talking rubbish with other Japanese riders. So it's um, yeah, well, you do one race a day, so they're quite unproductive days when you think about it. But um, you got an extremely clean bike by the end of the four days, and uh, and yeah, you just. Obviously, you have a have a two or three hour window where you have to race and and uh, put put your body on the line. What about links to the sport has to the Japanese mafia? You know, were you ever exposed to any elements of that? There's always punters at the track that are screaming at you, telling you to go die or or win for them or or uh, the odd swear word that they can't really pronounce. But never had rocks thrown at me. I had a bit of a run-in with a person that lost some money and on a train asking for his money back. Yeah, I mean when you win, they're your best friend and they and they kind of follow you once you get out after the four days. And if you lose, and you keep your eyes peeled for the yakuza in, in case uh, after some money back. But yeah, I never never had any run-ins. I saw a few people with missing fingers, but never had any had any real problems. Missing fingers meaning what? Oh, like the sacrifice yakuza style, chop your own middle finger off if you do something bad. Okay, 
serious business. What yeah. does, I guess all this this experience do for you as a cyclist and a person? Yeah, I mean, yeah, over there, like as a young person, you're your own manager, you're your own physio, you're your own travel agent, you're your own trainer. You've got to do everything yourself. There's no team as such. It's just you and a, a Russian and a Ukrainian and an Aussie and a Dutchman and a, maybe a Frenchman some one of the years. So you're um, a, a, a worldly contingent of five guys that uh, are racing in a Japanese sport dominated by Japanese people that don't want you to win and they hate it when you do win because you're taking money away from them. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, it just... I don't know, become very stoic, I suppose. You, nothing really rattles you, and uh, and you're ready for a fight if there ever is one. Because at that stage you were you were targeting the Rio Olympics, um, but it didn't really work out for you. What what happened there? Yeah, you know, my Japanese cycling career was 2010, and then didn't go because of Fukushima earthquake in 2011, and then I went after Olympics 2012, 2013, 14, 15. But yeah, I didn't go 2016 because I focused on the Rio Games. And yeah, they obviously... In London, I was the uh, um, focus, I suppose, because they had a good result of the World Champs that year. And the team sprint had a had a, had the number one priority at that point. And, um, and they had, yeah, a good result with a silver and uh, wasn't valued in the, in the Karen at that point. So I didn't go and... Um, they chose to take a development rider that didn't really eventuate anything. So, always raise the question: raise the question. You want the best riders to win the most medals, and, and I don't see the Olympics as a development um, stage of your life. You you want to be there firing and ready. But um, yeah, they thought differently, and and a few of us disagreed, but but uh, didn't get it passed. So yeah, then obviously Timmy Zealand was talking to me at that stage as well. So I thought. Nice quick change, chalk and cheese, and and um, jump ship to to Team New Zealand. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. How did the the connection with Emirates Team New Zealand come about? When I was first asked to come and visit the team, I suppose I didn't know, didn't really know what was going on, and um, yeah, I was put forward by a by a high performance sport. Uh, staff member to come and uh, help out here when uh, when they requested and I didn't really know and I just thought it was something random that they were looking at and uh, it turned up and they had a test jig with hydraulic pumps on it and uh, it was quite early days in the, in the whole scheme of it. It was 2015, early 2016 so um, the America's Cup wasn't even on my radar. It's still uh, remembering about San Fran, you know. So, um, yeah, just jumped on an erg and, and was peddling some hydraulic fluid around and nice guys, pretty pretty cool team, good chat and good camaraderie and and uh, I thought that would be pretty cool to stick around for. So, yeah, I just hung around like a virus and pestered them and... And yeah, kept asking when we're doing the next test and when the next uh, development is and I'll come check it out and help out and help the guys and give my experience on frame angles and cycling positions and, and basic training. So yeah, I visited the team, I don't know, every couple of months and, and uh, did some tests for them and yeah, they kind of offered me a bit of petrol money and it was enough to... to to live in Auckland and, and uh, start working part-time, I suppose, and, and then started going out in the water with them, leading into the into the changeover to cycling. And, and yeah, it was uh, from then on, as soon as the cycling system was signed off, I was full-time and, and training hard with the guys. And, and yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was only really four months of, of, um, of being full-time in the team. So, yeah, it was... Uh, Huge contrast from going from track cycling to to cycling on a on a yacht, but yeah, it was all relatively the same, same speed, same intensity, same level headedness. You just got to uh, go through the processes and control your controllables. What did you think? Um, you know, when they made contact? Yeah, I obviously didn't really uh, know what was going on, and 
and um, thought they might have had something up their sleeve that they were looking at. And, and uh, yeah, when I turned up, did the old cycling test on the hydraulic pump and, and yeah, just hung around and tested them for more tests and more training. And so, uh, yeah, they kept me in the loop and nice enough to invite me back for uh, for more tests. And, and yeah, once the, once the bike system was launched, got a... Uh, Got a contract with a with a bit of petrol money. You were sworn to secrecy about what they were doing. You know how hard was that? You know, particularly with those closest to you. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, people knew I was in the team, and I was. It was. You know, couldn't hide that fact. And uh, I mean, people knew I was in the team, but it's just easy enough to say that the weight. Uh, limit was a lot less than San Fran. There was only six guys, four guys that were going to be grinding. They needed lightweight, powerful guys, and I had a lot of history of powerlifting in the gym, and, and yeah, I just ran with that. Needed lightweight guys that were fit yet powerful, and um, wasn't that hard really. He just told that story and stuck with it, and uh, there was no, I mean, no one else, no one questioned it ever. They never said, but you're a cyclist. It was just, uh, I'm I'm a grinder now, and uh, Team New Zealand needed lightweight grinders, so I'm trolling trolling with them. And and how did the training differ from what you'd done as a cyclist? Um, There's a bit more endurance side of it, like the longer days on the water, obviously, with um, all the sailing and testing. But yeah, I mean, it was it was every sport's hard at the top end, and and you just got to adapt to it. And, um, yeah, we did a little bit more volume, a little bit longer inter- intervals, but the peak powers were still needed for manoeuvres and, um, and the, and the RPM of your, of your pedal speed and, and, uh, just repetitive. I mean, it would have been great to actually go back to endurance cycling after Bermuda, but I just couldn't be bothered. Couldn't be bothered to deal with the people that were in the, in the sport there. So, yeah, just, uh, went upper body, I suppose. Until uh, into the AT seventy five. Yeah, well, you had the sailing bug by then as well. So, but just that you know, and, and I'm guessing they probably drew on your experience and and helping train the other guys. Uh, you know, did you think you'd be able to turn a bunch of mostly sailors into cyclists? Yeah, I mean, they're very impressive athletes anyway. Sailing is a hard sport when you're uh, single handed on a fin or or a laser or a forty nine or so. Well, guys are very fit anyway. It was more just setting them up on a bike, getting their cleat placement and, and their seat height and their position sorted, and, and yeah, they just let loose. I mean, they've trained a hell of a lot harder than any other endurers I know, and, and um, I mean, they'll be out sailing all day, turning handles with their arms, and then come home, clean the boat, dry the boat, service the boat, and then get on the bike seven o'clock at night for a couple of hours before going home for dinner, you know, so it was um pretty impressive them doing that and and uh, they really, really wanted it so just had to write a few sessions up and, and um I mean the time was too short to do a proper block of training with volume going into into intervals. So we just went straight into intervals and, and uh and and peak peak sustained power so yeah, it was uh, thinking back such a short time that there's no no real time to do anything special. But luckily, the guys were fit anyway and, and hungry as, so they they just took it on. Hmm. It's a very data-driven world, you know. We live in now. How competitive did it get with the other grinders and in the team? And I guess still is competitive. Yeah, I mean it's it's a professional sport, but it's not a professional sport. Like it's not a it's not a like grinding as such. It's not a sport that you do year in year out. So you can make a lot of gains very quickly, and then you kind of teeter off those last few percent. So and every boat's different. Like you don't know what you're really training for. Cause you don't know what the demands are. So we um yeah obviously do a lot of volume in the in the off time and and move into intervals and and peak power during uh during the events. But yeah, I mean you've got to be very robust with these boats. It's um, a lot of jarring G-forces, 
pretty easy to roll your wrists or, or roll an ankle. So you've got to be big and strong, and you've got to be powerful, and then you've got to have a lot of endurance at the same time. So, yeah, it's just a big mix of everything. And, um, and yeah, you just got to cover all bases. What had your association with sailing been up to that point of joining Team New Zealand? Um, yeah, pretty minor, minor to zero. So, obviously, new upwind and downwind, and if it's slapping, set it on, but no real race experience or, or how to affect other, other, other yachtsmen on the water. So, yeah, I had been sailing and, and knew how to get around the harbour, but zero racing knowledge and, and zero uh, sailing action. So, um, yeah, it was pretty, I mean, I just read a book, really. That's the uh, easiest way to, to learn something. It's what people forget that is a, is a good way to do. But, yeah, just uh, learn online, really. And then, uh, and then applied it with all the comms that you're listening in on when you're on the water with the with the guys in the team here, and you learn pretty bloody quickly on what's going on and and uh, and and what they're doing, and and yeah, just listening in is is probably the most important thing. Because it's an amazing story when you think about it. Most people start their racing journey, say with a club race, maybe even at the Greenfleet Regatta. But your first yacht race was an America's Cup race. I mean, how crazy is that? Yeah. My first real race was against Oracle in the Louis Vuitton series in Bermuda after the ill-fated 2013 campaign. So it was quite classic, really, stepping on the boat for that after uh, what happened four years prior. So, I mean, it's sweet as, like... None of us on the boat other than Glenn were actually there and none of us really cared what happened in San Fran and we just wanted to win, so that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, had a good good, good bit of fun doing it. Yeah, well, the campaign obviously went phenomenally well. You know, what was that experience like for you in, in Bermuda? Yeah, I mean, it was very fast-paced and um, pretty ruthless. You just work hard and race hard and sleep hard and then yeah just take every race as it is and uh, not really worry about the the final results so yeah i mean it was i think we had one day off in bermuda went to a cafe and had a look around at a beach and the rest of the time we were just at work making sure the boat was ready and or out racing and winning so yeah when you have a job to do you do it the best you can and and um, expect everyone else in the team to do the same. At least you didn't have to look at anybody's backside. We knew the, the guy at the front. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of chat around that, but there's a winning formula and nice and aero and hands-free and able to push buttons and and um, obviously watch your PDA as well. And, and yeah, it was a hell of a lot of fun, that boat. And um, it was a pretty pretty cool regatta, pretty cool setting, pretty cool event. What about the day of the capsize? You know, were you on the boat? Were you thrown from the boat? Yeah, I was on the front and ended up in the dagger case um, area and didn't really know where I was. And Glenn obviously said when we were tipping over that we've still got it, we've still got it. And and we'd been, we'd dug and stuffed in before and popped out. But, yeah, that one there was just slightly more violent than previous ones. And, and uh I think Josh, Andy, and Blair hit me on their way past and really ran me into the dagger case. A bit of a sore back after that, but yeah, just listen to the comms and attach the line to tip it back over and yeah, get to work and fix it. So it was um, it was a violent day, obviously, with the sailing and and we we broke a wing that morning and changed the wing and sailed to the start line, crossed the line at the start time against BAR and managed to beat them and one was picking up more and, and yeah, it was quite violent sailing back across reaching across the start line for the second race and then uh, we took it pretty easy in the pre-start because we knew we had genuine boat speed over them but yeah just bad gusts, bad move bit of uh, too much power and yeah over she went so it was um, obviously exciting yeah, but as, at the same time, it was dangerous, so pretty cool memory to have. Yeah. 
well, it was an amazing effort by the team to, to get up and running again. And then you go on and win the cup. And and then Team New Zealand in the in the next sort of rules, say the banning cyclists for the, the present campaign. You know, what were you thinking at this point? Would you go back to cycling? Would you stick with them? Yeah, I mean, I had such a good time in Bermuda with the team and it's a pretty cool team to be in and cool guys and heaps of good chat. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's Team New Zealand, you know, you're... you're the, uh, one of your pinnacle sports teams in the country, and and I thought it'd be pretty awesome to help with the defence. You know, I mean, who who wouldn't? So they um, asked for a parfait with the senior management. And they just said, "Go do some training and see you in two years." You know, go get a job, go do some training, and see you at the trial. So um, they were kind enough to give me a Les Mills membership, and and, uh, and yeah, went and got a job at. Southern Spars, Mark Gowser was kind enough to give me an admin job to uh, help out where I could there and and um, obviously trained hard at the same time and, and yeah, did well at the trial and here I am. Was it hard to transform yourself from a cyclist to a traditional grinder? Yeah, I mean, I was saying earlier that cycling's got a minimal skill set as well, but grinding's even more simpler, so you just stand there and turn handles and, and uh, it's a direct result of how much you put in. So if you train a lot, then you're going to have a pretty big motor. And yeah, that was pretty much the end goal, just do as much as I could, make myself as robust as possible in the gym, just benching and bench pulling and, and yeah, just time on the handles. And uh, yeah, had two solid years of, of turning handles and paid off in the trial. Hmm. But you also got involved in more traditional yachting. Um, you know, what was your thinking behind all of that? Yeah, I was just, I mean, I wanted to, didn't want to be, didn't want to be a non-sailor, you know. Like, I wanted to learn from the grassroots up. Obviously, everyone in the team had that um, background and, and that conventional sailing side of it. So, yeah, I just jumped on any boat I could, offered it to everyone, and I know a lot of people asking them if I could join them. And, yeah, just sat there and listened and did a bit of ballast work, you know, and, and uh, turned a few handles and trimmed the jib a few times and, yeah, had a had a lot of fun meeting you guys and, and sailing a lot of boats. So, yeah, I mean, it's a polar opposite to to, to going 40 knots all day and then uh, maxing out at four knots on a marauder. But, um, yeah, obviously it's, uh, it's all the same at the end of the day, except one's more extreme and... The other's a bit more uh, laid back. What sort of races and events did you do? Oh, everything. Coastal, uh, Marauder Nationals, Young 88 Nationals, every Wednesday night race I could do, every Saturday race I could do. So a lot of people do that anyway, and it's nothing special, but like uh, any young kid, I suppose, they want to be a good sailor. They've got to sail on every boat they can and, and lean on every boat they can, so... I kind of took that same approach as a as a thirteen year old kid, you know. And how's that helped you, I guess, in your present role with with Team New Zealand? Um, yeah, I mean, this boat's got a lot more conventional sailing um, attributes with the double skin mainsail and runners and and jib cuts and and all that sailing jargon and uh, and actual physical. Thing. So yeah, it was good to learn all that and um, learn on big boats and small boats and everything else in between. So it was um, yeah a much easier learning curve with the AC75 than uh, than the cat, which only had a wing and and no ropes at all. So um, yeah, that's probably what it was. What it, what it was definitely best for. When I was researching for this um, interview, I, I found a Q and A you did in 2018 when I asked um, the highlight of your sailing career, and you said it was the 2017 Coastal, Coastal Classic. And what was it about that race that was so special? Yeah, I actually put the 2018 Marauder Nationals, but I don't know why they put the Coastal Classic. But <laughs> they, um, Yeah, I mean, it's a cool event. It was a downwinder. We um, get to see a lot of New Zealand and um, pushing hard sailing the whole way for a, a whole day and night and... I was lucky to be on Kia Kaha, the TP52, and Chris Hornell was in our team in Bermuda, so we're 
get to catch up with him and yeah, get to learn a lot of sailing in a in a short time. So it was pretty uh pretty cool event. And I yeah, I mean they should do it twice a year. I don't know why they don't do it twice a year. Do you have you know any other ambitions in sailing, but say beyond the America's Cup? Um, I mean the America's Cup so time consuming anyway. I never really thought of it. And the fact that it's nice to stay in one place for a while after travelling for 10 years straight. So, um, nah, I mean, not right now unless uh, unless uh, something falls on my lap, I suppose, or I get asked. But I can't see myself chasing anything other than Emirates 10 New Zealand again. So, it's, um, yeah, it's so time-consuming and, and bespoke as it is that need to train... And um, and there's so much sailing you can do in Auckland Harbour anyway that uh, that yeah, I can tick tick a lot of boxes here. I, I guess your story probably highlights that there are so many different pathways people can have to get into the sport of sailing. And what would you say to someone who's thinking about giving it a go but thinks it's too late? Yeah, I mean it's yeah, like you say, any sport. If you if it is. Uh, a sporting role or an admin role or a, or a design role or a, or a coaching role or anything like if you if you get half a chance if you get a sniffing then you just 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 volunteer you know like there's no people build trust over time and and I just hung around like a virus so it was um that was my way in really it wasn't wasn't so much me being a uh, a good cyclist but it was more uh, more just hanging around really. Mm. Well, we've got a motto um, at Yachting New Zealand. You know, we talk about it being a sport for life. Is, do you see yourself being involved in sailing? You know, for most of your life. Yeah, I mean, I, I both my uncles have had boats and and um, been cruising for a, uh, from a young age, never racing. But yeah, I mean, we've always been on the water and uh, always enjoyed the water. And and yeah, I, I definitely see myself enjoying the water in the future. So. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, any Kiwis are sailor for life, aren't they? So true. But you've got more immediate concerns, obviously, with the America's Cup match starting uh, soon. And everyone's still tipping Team New Zealand as favourites. And I just was reading a story this morning. Grant Simmer, the CEO of Enios, labelled you guys scary and intimidating. Do you think that's justified? Do you think you're favourite? Um, I mean, you never know until you line up. And you can't tempt fate with anything by saying things like that, which is why our team's quite mute on the uh, on the subject. But yeah, I mean we've pushed the design hard, and the boat looks the way it does because we obviously think hard and work hard and design hard. So yeah, it's um it's going to be exciting when we line up for the first time, and and uh, yeah, just we just can't wait to to go racing. So yeah, I wouldn't say we're scary and intimidating. We're um, pretty happy guys here, so yeah. yeah. It's not a bad thing, though, if people think you're scary and intimidating, right? I mean, yeah, I was always scared of the Germans and track cycling because they were quite intimidating looking, but it's good to have that uh, aura around you leading into a race. So yeah, it's, uh, I suppose it's a nice thing to hear. Yeah, well, we certainly wish you well um, for for the campaign ahead. Um, but just before you go, um, I need to ask your worst wipeout ever. So um, the floor is yours. You want a sailing one or a uh, a worldly one? You can you can choose. Um, yeah, obviously what we were talking about earlier with Japanese Karen, there's there's always a always a chance of a major crash, and, and yeah. Had a few major crashes over there. Luckily, my motocross armor did its job. But I think one year I I crashed and broke a shoulder blade, but um, or fractured a shoulder blade. But one of my feet didn't come out of its uh, pedal because we were strapped in. Everything's just strapped in when you're on the on the start line, so you can get a maximal power. But yeah, the bike kind of um, flopped around whilst my my foot was still attached, and it strained every single tendon in my knee and ankle but yeah it was a lot more painful than the uh the shoulder was but yeah I was, I was i was back up and riding not long after that but that was definitely the biggest wipeout and i could 
I vividly remember it coming, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get hooked here, and then I'm going to go high side, and I'm probably going to fall a story, or a whole story down the track to the bottom, which did happen, and, and yeah, the bike stayed with me, toiling around my ankles, so it's pretty, uh, pretty nasty way to crash. Yeah, just as well, you had the padding. I'm like, I'm just cringing <laughs> thinking of it, especially on a concrete track. Yeah. And it'd be like sand. Your legs are, yeah, your legs are exposed. I mean, they, yeah, they all wear the all, all wear the track, so they're sprayed, pretty much sprayed grip, uh, non-skid. So, yeah, your legs are exposed because it's a high-moving area, so you definitely get a lot of skin taken off. But, yeah, if you get tangled up on a bike, it's pretty painful, especially everything's steel. But, yeah, it's good fun. I'll do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, we hope you guys don't have any dramatic um, cat sizes in the next um, few days. Um, so, yeah, as I say, best of luck with when racing gets underway here. We'll certainly be following things um, with a lot of interest. Um, but yep. uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining uh, Broad Reach Radio. No worries. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, good to chat and uh, nice to bring back some old memories and, yeah, life in the fast lane, eh? Well, that brings us to the end of another Broadreach Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in. You can contact me on michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz with feedback and suggestions. And if you've liked what you've heard, then please give us a follow. I'll catch you in a fortnight with the next podcast. Take care.